When it comes to an outbreak of a deadly disease, who do you trust? Officials, journalists, doctors, or people on social media? We're going to be talking about that today on Taiwan Insider. I'm Andrew Ryan. I'm Natalie So. But first, let's take a look at what's been on our radar this week. This week on the radar, it's the continued spread of the coronavirus disease, now officially called COVID-19. The number of confirmed cases in China jumped by nearly 15,000 on Thursday, and the death toll went up by nearly 250. That's because China has changed the way it's diagnosing the disease, but that's making it harder to chart the trends. There are now more than 60,000 confirmed cases, and about 1,400 have died. Taiwan has so far recorded just 18 confirmed cases. Two of those patients have fully recovered. The Philippines has extended a ban on travelers from China to include Taiwan. The move was announced suddenly last weekend, leaving over 500 Taiwanese travelers stranded in the country, including more than 150 at airports. Taipei has threatened to retaliate, and the Philippine government says it's reconsidering. Taiwan has halted nearly all flights to China amid fears about COVID-19. Only flights to and from five Chinese destinations will be allowed until at least April 29th. Taiwan has also banned the entry of most residents of Hong Kong and Macau as a precautionary measure. Chinese military aircraft briefly entered Taiwan's airspace on Monday during a training exercise. This is the first Chinese encroachment in nearly a year. Taiwan scrambled its jets and issued radio warnings in response. The U.S. also sent aircraft near Taiwan on Wednesday, while a State Department spokesperson urged Beijing to stop using coercive tactics and resume dialogue with Taipei. The new coronavirus that originated in Wuhan, China, now has a new name. It's called COVID-19. That's short for Coronavirus Disease 2019, the year it emerged. Now, the WHO didn't name it after a place, an animal, or a group of people to avoid stigmatization. But authorities in Taiwan are still going to use the nickname Wuhan pneumonia to avoid confusion. So what do we know about the COVID-19 patients? Well, a new study headed by the top Chinese epidemiologist is shedding some new light on the disease. And that's the subject of today's Taiwan Explained. So what do the patients of the new coronavirus, or COVID-19, have in common? Well, in today's Taiwan Explained, we're going to be talking about a new study coming to us from China. Now, I should mention, Nally, this study has not been peer-reviewed. However, the team that conducted this research is headed by Dr. Zhongnan Shen. And you'll remember that he is the guy who discovered the SARS coronavirus of 2003, right? Okay, so he has some experience there. Yes, a lot of experience. All righty. So Let's uh, give you 60 seconds for this. All right. Ready? Go. Yep. Now, this new research looked at more than 1,000 patients clinically diagnosed. Uh, now, they were at 552 hospitals in 31 provinces and cities. Most of the patients in the study were male with a median age of 47. They crunched the numbers, and this is what they found. More than 75% lived in Wuhan or had contact with someone from Wuhan. Only about 1% had direct contact with wildlife. Now, as for the symptoms, the most common was a fever. Nearly 90% had one, but notably less than half had a fever before hospitalization. Another common symptom was coughing. Now, let's talk about the more serious cases. 15% had severe pneumonia. 5% were admitted to the ICU, and about 1.4% of the people in the study succumbed to the virus. That's low 
uh, lower than the previous uh, estimates of the fatality rate. And finally, perhaps most interesting, the incubation period was uh, about a median of three days, which is also less than originally thought. <laughs> good job. Very <laughs> good job. Good time. Right. So I'm curious about this incubation period. Tell us more about that, what exactly that means. Okay, so incubation period, this is very interesting. This is uh, the time after you come in contact with the source of transmission and then before the point at which uh, we have the onset of symptoms. So basically what they're saying is, is it's a median of three days. Originally it was thought to be more like five days. And why this is so important is because you could actually have uh, COVID-19, the new coronavirus, and not know it, but also be able to infect other people. Yeah, that's not good. Yeah. That's happened a lot. Um, also, people are talking about or wondering when this is going to end. What have you heard, Andrew? Well, this is the million-dollar question, right? Everybody wants to know when is this going to be over. Uh, and there's no set answer, except that we don't really know. Now, Dr. Zhong Nanshan, who's the epidemiologist in China who uh, did that research that I just talked about, he has said that he thinks or he hopes it will be over by sometime in April. However, he's already gone back on his previous uh, prediction. So mm -hmm. I don't think he knows either. Um, so I think it's important to kind of take all of these predictions with a grain of salt. Also, he is the face of epidemiology in China. And the officials in China, of course, want to put a positive spin on what's happening with the virus. Now, I do want to point you to another person who has talked a little bit about what the future could hold for the coronavirus here in Taiwan. And that is Chen Jianren, who is the vice president. Now, he recently posted on Facebook saying that, you know, this may not end the way SARS did. It actually may become seasonal, seasonal sort mm -hmm. of like come back every season the way H1N1 does. And he actually gave three interesting reasons for why this could be the case. First of all, because it's highly contagious. It has a relatively low uh, fatality rate. And also it's flu-like. So, you know, of course, the flu comes back every season. Thanks very much, Andrew. And that is our Taiwan Explained for the week. As a new coronavirus spreads around the world, something else has been spreading also. Xenophobia, the fear or hatred of foreigners. Now, recently, Andrew spoke with Deutsche Welle East Asia correspondent William Yang about what people in Taiwan are saying on social media about China. Oftentimes what we see, it's like if it's some uh, a report about how the Chinese government has not been really revealing the full extent of the epidemic, then a lot of the people would immediately in, uh, project the stereotype that they have about the Chinese government and say, see, you know, this is all because of what the Chinese government has always been functioning, like, uh, you know, dictating and being arbitrary, controlling all the flow of the information. That's why the epidemic happens. And uh, there are some extreme examples that I've actually seen online where uh, people are clearly frustrated about the Chinese government blocking Taiwan from joining the WHO meetings. And so they are saying how the whole epidemic spreading across China right now is the karma that the Chinese people had to endure because of its government's evil treatment of Taiwan. And 
I, I think those are the extreme examples of how a discussion about China often goes the more extreme direction in Taiwan, especially when it comes to something that's negatively impacting China. And then also that originates from China, but it's probably going to have a potentially very negative impact on the world. And they consider that as it's all like China is all you know, it's all China's fault, and then like these people deserve it, and things like that. So, do you think this is indicative of what the average person in Taiwan thinks, or is this something that's just fueled by kind of the internet being what it is, the medium itself? I would love to think that it's more like uh, being hyped up by the internet and also the so called echo chamber that we're seeing over here, especially. We're just after another election, and then we're actually seeing also the political atmosphere here in Taiwan are sometimes uh, influencing how the society is responding to things related to China, uh, because we also know that the government right now is standing very firm and uh, highlighting, re-emphasizing many times about how uh, Taiwan is being bullied by China. Maybe that also plays a little role in terms of how people perceive the role of China and what's happening over there. Actually, what's interesting is a lot of people from Wuhan are actually facing discrimination in other parts of China in much the same way that uh, you know Chinese people are facing discrimination from other countries in Asia, and Asians in general are facing discrimination in the rest of the world. I think there's just a lot of fear and anxiety that's at the root of all of this. And people, you know, turn that fear into anger mm. or looking for someone to blame. Um, I think, you know, it is one thing to blame or to look at the people who are in charge and if they're handling it well. Mm. But it's another thing to blame a whole country of people who are victims as well. Absolutely. Well, one way that you can combat fear and anxiety is by staying informed. But who and what can you trust? It seems like there's a lot of misinformation and disinformation. Let's have a look at this report. You'd think that the novel coronavirus outbreak is giving people enough to worry about. But there's an outbreak of another sort that's playing on the public's fears, an outbreak of misinformation. This post circulating on messaging apps claims that people can fend off novel coronavirus as long as they drink hot water. Experts say that's too good to be true. The premise behind this idea is that the coronavirus cannot survive in environments between 26 and 27 degrees Celsius. Medical professional He Mei Xiang tells us that novel coronavirus actually thrives in that kind of environment. Of course, drinking water is a healthy habit, but it won't kill a virus. There's another rumor out there that the new coronavirus cannot survive for more than half an hour over 56 degrees Celsius, so it's best to crank up the heat or hit the sauna. He says that if you heat yourself up to 56 degrees, odds are you'll die along with any viruses. The government is cracking down on misinformation and has increased the fine for spreading fake news about contagious diseases to $3 million NT dollars. That's about $100,000 U.S. dollars. From January 23rd through February 4th, the authorities highlighted 31 cases of misinformation which could lead to prosecution. Now, the WHO has also been busy debunking myths about the new coronavirus. Let's have a look at some of those. Okay, the first is, is it safe to take a letter or package from China? Well, yes, it is safe. Coronaviruses do not survive long on objects such as letters and packages. And what about your pets at home? The question is, can they spread the new coronavirus? Now, there's no evidence that pets can be infected, but it's still a good idea to wash your hands after contact with your pets. 
can spraying alcohol or chlorine on your body disinfect you and kill the new coronavirus? Well, no, not if the virus has already entered your body. They can disinfect surfaces, but can be harmful to clothes and your eyes and mouth. So there are a lot of myths out there. So let's think twice before we share something on social media. This week on hashtag Taiwan, the great toilet paper panic of 2020. Now, <laughs> hold off. I already know the questions you're about to ask. What's a toilet paper panic? Why do I have to specify 2020? Well, a toilet paper panic is when people rush to the stores. They clear out all the toilet paper, causing a nationwide store shortage. Why do I have to specify 2020? Because this isn't the first time it's happened in Taiwan. I am dead serious. The first toilet paper panic was in 2018, and if you don't believe me, here's the website from Wikipedia, the web page that documents the whole affair. And as we all know, Wikipedia <laughs> doesn't lie. Checkmate, you guys. So what caused the 2018 uh, toilet paper panic? Well, a combination of questionable marketing practices and media sensationalism led consumers to believe that toilet paper prices would rise by 30% or more. What's causing the 2020 toilet paper panic? Well, the short answer is the coronavirus outbreak. And for the long answer, well, Andrew, I'm going to turn to your Twitter for that one. Me? Ah, Andrew! Andrew says, (laughs) all of Taiwan is completely losing their collective mind. There's literally no toilet paper on the shelves again because someone said face masks and toilet paper are made of the same material. They're not. (laughs) Andrew, were you, was this motivated by a certain... Were you looking for toilet paper? I have to tell you, the worst thing is, is when there's a run on the stores and you actually do need toilet paper, <laughs> right? Okay? You know, if I buy, if you saw me buying toilet paper, it's not because other people were buying it. It was because maybe need I needed it. some. Okay. Did you get it? Yeah. <laughs> Let's not discuss my toilet paper situation. Let's moving on. Moving on. <laughs> Taiwan's premier, Su Zhen being the master of social media that he is, released this graphic... On the top, it says, we have but one butt. <laughs> Don't hoard. Don't believe the word things you hear on the internet. He goes on to clarify to say that uh, the face masks in Taiwan are made from non-woven fabric produced in Taiwan. And the toy- toilet paper that we used is made from pulp sourced from South America. Like, That's you why s- his butt is facing us. And he's got like little shaking marks. So he's like doing a little bit of a he likes tushy shake. shake. Man. He likes to shake. That's really hilarious. But as you can see, face masks and tissue paper have absolutely nothing to do with anything with each other, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you know what? Even with the premier's warnings, that didn't stop people from making a run on the stores. Eric Gao went to the store to refill his toilet paper needs and only to find the stores and the toilet paper completely barren. There's wow. nothing there. Do you see anything? The shelves are just empty. They're completely empty. There's nothing there. Wow. People act fast. People do act fast. Mm. Anyway, the face mask rationing period, when that began, there was a Facebook a custom profile frame that you can use for your profile picture, which said, I'm okay, you can get your face mask first. It was just a nice way to express, you know, hey, I'm healthy, I'm all right. I'm going to let other people go get their face masks first. And before you ask, yes, guys, that is the very handsome Leslie Liao right there. Very nice. Leslie Liao pick of the week time, all right, guys? So with this whole toilet paper panic going on, some wise guy on the internet created this custom frame. Get this. He says, I'm okay, 
You poop first. <laughs> I'm gonna save the toilet paper oh, for the people who can't hold it in. That's very With nice. Brown lining. Yeah. All right, guys, after that, I feel like we need to culture it up. So I'm going to close it with this. The culture ministry is getting in on a piece of this action. One of the events that has been canceled, or actually, I should say postponed, because of the coronavirus outbreak, is the Taipei International Book Exhibition. But the culture ministry would like to remind you that it's postponed and not canceled. So it's saying... This it gives you this picture of a bunch of books, and it says, "Hey, we're made from pulp too. Why don't you fight over us instead?" <laughs> the marketing a run on nice the bookstores that might help. Yes, That'd be good. Mm-hmm. Support the local publishing industry, right? Or libraries, yeah. yeah. You know, I find unlike toilet paper, intelligence can never be in short supply. No, that's a good one, Leslie. <laughs> That was very interesting, Leslie. Thank you very much. All right. mm. And that is our hashtag Taiwan for the week. And finally, today at the top of the show, we showed you a photo and asked if you knew where it was. Let's take one more look at that photo. The wind turbines on the left are a popular tourist destination in Taiwan. On the right, they're featured in a music video of the theme song of this year's Lantern Festival. Where in Taiwan is this? Well, let's have a look at this report on the theme song for the Lantern Festival. As it prepares to host the 2020 Taiwan Lantern Festival, the Taichung City government is pulling out all the stops. The city has asked a local band, the Chairs, to create a song for the event. This isn't just any old band. The Chairs were named the best vocal group at the 2019 Golden Melody Awards, Taiwan's equivalent of the Grammys. The theme song the band has come up with is filled with nods to local scenery and culture. There are references to Taichung's pearl milk tea, the city's night scenery. And the wind turbines at the coastal Gaomei wetlands. Even the local Huli horse farm and an art installation from the recent Taizong Flora Expo get mentions. The city's connection with saxophone making is played up, and the very saxophone heard in the song was made in Taizong. We hope you enjoyed this inside look at Taiwan this week. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Yes, leave a comment below. We would love to hear from you. For Taiwan Insider, I'm Natalie So. I'm Leslie Liao, and I'm Andrew Ryan. See you next week. Andrew Ryan and Ellen Chu as they sample their way through Taiwan's culinary delights. Andrew, I thought we said no more intestines. 
That's on Feast Meets West. Every Saturday, only on Radio Taiwan International. Radio for refined palates. Taiwan Today with Natalie So. Welcome to Taiwan Today. I am Natalie So. Taiwan is still on high alert about the new coronavirus. And today we continue to feature Andrew Ryan's interview with Deutsche Welle correspondent William Yang, who has been reporting about the coronavirus in China. Now, the World Health Organization has also come under criticism regarding its handling of the outbreak, with some even calling for the director general to step down. Andrew talks to Yang about the WHO and its ties with China. There's actually been a lot of criticism for the way that the World Health Organization has handled this epidemic. Do you think that they are swaying to pressure from China in terms of what they're reporting, the types of information they're sharing, or their willingness to you know, declare a different level of emergency? Yeah, for sure. Because like uh, most of the experts that I've interviewed all agreed that the WHO should have announced it as a global health emergency a week before they actually did. And mm. the reason why they delay it, the French media revealed the inner negotiation that happened within the WHO is the fact that China put pressure on the WHO because they don't want the epidemic to be uh, considered as a global threat because they are worried about how uh, the repercussion is going to happen to the country, like the travel bans that we're actually seeing right now uh, being uh, rolled out by more and more countries, and ev including Taiwan. I'm curious to know, with countries actually speaking out on behalf of Taiwan. So for example, Japan, also Canada have both spoken out on behalf of Taiwan's participation in the WHO. Do you think that this is actually a, a point in, in time where it might actually be more possible for Taiwan to participate, or there might be more support for this, and that could actually pave the way for Taiwan uh, returning to the WHO as a participant? Or as an observer. Yeah, for sure. I think the amount of the support and also the concern about Taiwan being left out of the WHO has been a champion and also highlighted by so many uh, major countries around the world. And their reasoning are all very consistent because, you know, leaving out Taiwan, who actually could be one of the first few countries that are impacted by this epidemic because of its, again, close relationship with China and interaction with China, uh, could actually pose a very serious threat to the a global public health system and also the fact that you know leaving out any country and like allowing the ep epidemic to have the possibility of spreading and growing in a place where the WHO is facing so many uh, political challenges is actually going to, again, not be a very, it's basically a counterproductive way of fighting this global disease in their views. Now, so far, Taiwan has been largely successful in keeping the novel coronavirus outside of its borders. Why do you think that Taiwan has been successful in doing that? I think the SARS experience has really tr uh, left a deep trauma in Taiwanese people. So when the experts are correlating this virus to the SARS virus, uh, people immediately raise their level of awareness. And also, we need to remember that there are some people uh, who play the very important role during the SARS uh, epidemic now at a very crucial position in the administration, including our vice president, who actually was the person who's behind the whole coordinating and orchestrating the whole uh, combat against SARS effort at the time. 
So I, I think that actually helps a lot in terms of Taiwan being prepared for what could happen. And then so they we immediately set up these uh, very strong and crucial guidelines to ensure that uh, the loopholes would be blocked before like the virus even started spreading it within Taiwan. It seems now that the Taiwan government is faced with this unique uh, problem where they're trying to balance protecting the nation and keeping the virus out with making sure that people aren't afraid to the point where there's pandemonium with people, you know, hoarding masks and things like that. Do you think that they're doing a good job of balancing these two disparate needs? I think they're definitely trying their best. But as we all know, uh, the tendency of people here is that I think as a Taiwanese person, when something very serious happened, and then we were reminded of the possibility of its spread here, then what we always tend to do is to stock up as much of the things that we can rely on as possible. So that's actually when the lockdown happened in right before Chinese New Year, just tons of people went to local drugstores and convenience stores to buy up all the masks that are available. And then uh, in the beginning, of course, the government had to come out and ensure people that there are still enough masks in stock and so people don't have to worry but you know when i think when they realize how much people are actually saving a stocking up at home they realize that they need to set some kind of like rules to make sure that this evaporation of the masks is not going to like drain the whole uh, stockpile that uh, the country still has mm. so i think right now we're rolling out the so-called uh, matching identity to and every per- limiting every person's uh, ability to buy up the number of the masks is a way for them to ensure uh, when the epidemic did, it, unfortunately, if it did happen and spread out here, the country is still able to cope with it. I noticed that you, when you arrived at the uh, radio station, Radio Taiwan International today, you were not wearing a mask. Right. Was this a conscious choice or is this connected to your personality? What were you thinking? I think it's, I, I'd like to believe what the government suggested, which is the fact that unless you're really sick or unless you're in a really, really crowded private area that uh, the ventilation is probably not that good, then uh, wearing the mask is uh, necessary. But for me, it's more about not panicking or scaring myself rather than, you know, like be, being always like very feared or like mm, yes, afraid, yeah, yeah, afraid about sure. like yeah 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 like what what could be happening around me yeah it seems like there's kind of like this low-grade anxiety that a lot of people in taiwan feel about a lot of things right. uh, the tense relationship that uh taiwan has with china so i think we're kind of always prepared for the worst to happen right now i want to shift a little bit now to kind of the response of people here in taiwan uh, you've been observing how people are interacting uh, with others on social media how have people People in Taiwan on social media responded to this outbreak. What are their thoughts about what's happening in China? So, like, at least under a lot of the uh, articles that we publish uh, at Deutsche Villa's uh, Chinese Facebook page, oftentimes what we see, it's like, if it's some uh, a report about how the Chinese government has not been really revealing the full extent of the epidemic, then a lot of the people would immediately in, uh, project the stereotype that they have about the Chinese government and say, see, you know, this is all because of what the Chinese government has always been functioning, like, uh, you know, dictating and being arbitrary, controlling all the flow of the information. That's why the epidemic happens. There are some extreme examples that I've actually seen online where uh, people are clearly frustrated about the Chinese government 
blocking Taiwan from joining the WHO meetings. And so they are saying how the whole epidemic spreading across China right now is the karma that the Chinese people had to endure because of its government's evil treatment of Taiwan. And I, I think those are the extreme examples of how a discussion about China often goes the more extreme direction in Taiwan, especially when it comes to something that originates from China, but is probably going to have a potentially very negative impact on the world. And they consider that as it's all China's fault. And then like these people deserve it and things like that. So do you think this is indicative of what the average person in Taiwan thinks? Or is this something that's just fueled by kind of the internet being what it is, the medium itself? I would love to think that it's more like uh, being hyped up by the internet and also the so-called echo chamber that we're seeing over here, especially we're just after another election. And then we're actually seeing also the political atmosphere here in Taiwan are sometimes uh, influencing how the society is responding to things related to China. Because we also know that the government right now is standing very firm and uh, highlighting, re-emphasizing many times about how Taiwan is being bullied by China. Maybe that also plays a little role in terms of how people perceive the role of China and what's happening over there. What would you like to tell the rest of the world about how Taiwan is experiencing this outbreak of the virus? What, what do you think that people get wrong about Taiwan's response or Taiwan's experience? I think a lot of the times what I see sometimes on uh, on like the international media or around the world is that people automatically still believe that Taiwan is part of China. So this whole response that China is rolling out probably is also being you know rolled out, rolled in out here yeah. or like the similar challenges uh, that China is facing are also happening here in Taiwan as well. But clearly, uh, I think. What's very important to know is that Taiwan has its own healthcare system and including a very different healthcare insurance system than China. And also the fact that the government has a full control about its border and like, you know, the immigration policies and also the uh, response that uh, should be implemented at what stage. So when it comes to reporting about the impact of that on Taiwan, I think the international community just needs to remember that uh, Taiwan again, is a very de facto sovereign state that has its own capacity to really deal with what the, you know, the potential impact that the virus is going to have on the island. Now, you obviously have been following uh, what's happening on social media very, very closely. Uh, I'm curious if you could talk for just a moment about um, Taiwan's government and how it's using social media to get the word out, how that maybe has changed since SARS and maybe how that's different than, of course, uh, how the Chinese government is responding on social media. So definitely comparing to, uh, well, let's say almost 20 years ago by now, mm -hmm. like the government now is very uh, internet minded. So we're, especially this current administration, so we're seeing most of the uh, important head of the uh, government agencies, including our premier, are all on uh, global social media, especially Twitter. And what they've like uh, they've constantly been using a lot of very creative ways to either roll out their policies or explain their policies and uh, to the international community. And that's been receiving a lot of positive responses and receptions because of the fact that they consider Taiwan as trying very hard to 
be part of the international community. And I think that uh, the utilization of the social media outlets have really played an important role for that. But as for the social media, uh, the Chinese government's response to the social media, they actually uh, just announced, I think, when, when Xi Jinping was actually given a talk during a very important higher level Communist Party meeting, he actually mentioned that the Communist Party needs to start regulating more of the online articles or information about the virus. So I think we could potentially see a very different uh, development on the Chinese social media in the coming weeks because Mm -hmm. we should always think about whatever that comes out of the Chinese government's official uh, responses as in hindsight we should always remember that these are uh, information that are either already been filtered and then uh, it certainly tries to frame a certain image about the Chinese government in this whole epidemic so that uh, we're not going to only just blindly believe that this this the entire picture that we're going to be able to see. Now, over the last uh, four years of the Thai administration here in Taiwan, we've seen exchanges with China kind of dwindle. We've seen kind of a a much colder uh, relationship between the two countries. Uh, Do you think that that has played a role in sparing Taiwan so far from the brunt of this virus? For sure. I think uh, the most important point is the fact that the Chinese government banning almost all Chinese tourists that to, to, to come to Taiwan. And that actually reduced a lot of the potential risks that Taiwanese people could be exposed to the uh, virus. I think that actually is, in a way, surprisingly uh, favored Taiwan's fate right now in this whole epidemic. Again, we've been speaking with William Young, who is the East Asia correspondent for Deutsche Welle uh, and has also been featured in uh, a number of different media, including uh, The Guardian, uh, BuzzFeed News and whatnot. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. What do you know about Taiwan? I know who the president is. What about their local music and food? Well, hmm, what do you suggest? Tune in to Radio Taiwan International. Here at RTI, we offer the authentic Taiwan experience. You hear the sound of remote attractions, the local food, music, the lives of real Taiwanese as they live it. Visit english.rti.org.tw. Listen to the real Taiwan. to the RTI Time Machine. Today's time traveler is... John Van Trieste. And the destination... Danshui, 1886. Danshui is a place of boardwalk entertainments and trendy eateries to the north of Taipei, where the Danshui River meets the sea. It's a historic place, with sites including a 17th-century fort occupied by the Spanish, then the Dutch. 
But there's another fort here, less well-known, up on an out-of-the-way hilltop. It, too, is a foreign design, but the soldiers who were stationed here were not foreign. It was, in fact, a foreign invasion they hoped to head off. These were soldiers of Imperial China, and their brief time here during the 1880s and 1890s is remembered as a time when one government official tried to save Taiwan from what turned out to be inevitable. The solid masonry and brickwork here still stands, but that's about it, the rest having decayed away many years ago. That's why it's fortunate we've met up today with Ms. Chen, a volunteer guide here at the century-old Hobei Fort, whose job it is to fill in the holes in the fort's story. We walk in through the front gate, several meters thick, its passage like a tunnel. As your eyes adjust to the light, you'll find yourself in a broad courtyard, strewn about with pebbles, thick with dandelions and clovers, and surrounded on all sides by thick walls. A structure, some say quarters of some kind, once stood in this courtyard, but all you can see now is the rubble of the foundation. Filled with soldiers in its day, though, this place would have been impressive. The fort was designed by German Lieutenant Max E. Hecht, and built with a mix of materials from Britain, mainland China, and the mountains just across the river. This eclectic mix atop a hill in Danshui seems a bit odd, especially given how much it would have cost to build and the chilled-out personality of Danshui today. A place known for its giant ice cream cones and seaside caricatures hardly seems the kind of place you'd need something like this. But Danshui in the 1880s was a different kind of place, a port open to foreign trade, and a town where global tensions could reach. It was an anxious time for officialdom in Taiwan. You can see it in the size of the artillery guns they ordered for the turrets here. Though Ms. Chun is only able to show us pictures, few originals survive in this part of the world, you can still get the idea. And these officials had plenty of reasons to be worried. For a time, Taiwan had been seen as a sort of shield, its high mountains off the coast protecting Imperial China's heartland from foreigners. But in the 19th century, Taiwan became itself a target for foreign aggression. In 1874, rapidly modernizing Japan had sent an expeditionary force to Taiwan to punish an indigenous group for the killing of some shipwrecked sailors it claimed as subjects. The state of Taiwan's defenses and the fact that the empire didn't really control the whole island were both showing. More alarming for the Danshui area was the next attempt at a foreign landing, this time by French forces as part of a conflict over far-off Vietnam. Maps inside one of the fort's bare and echoey chambers show how close to this spot they landed in 1884. The French landing failed, but anxiety over Taiwan's defenses rose, and it was clear something had to be done. Under mounting foreign pressure, Taiwan was declared an imperial province, and its first governor, Liu Mingchuan, went into action. Taiwan, he decided, would have to strengthen itself, and modernization would be key. Taiwan's first railway line was built on his watch, and undersea cables laid down during his tenure linked Taiwan with the outside world. And then there was the military side of this self-strengthening. Critical points along the coast, points like this one, were to be fortified using the latest foreign methods. 
Work on the fort began in 1886, just a year after French ships lifted a blockade on Danshui's port. The results taking shape here on this hilltop were impressive for their time. You can see that its stone walls were several meters thick and coated on the outside with an expensive layer of cement. Off from the central courtyard on every side, there are arched chambers made with thick, expensive masonry, barracks of soldiers and stores for gunpowder ready to fire the fort's artillery. And then, of course, there were the artillery guns themselves. We've already talked about how big they were, but they were also huge improvements over traditional cannons here. And these Armstrongs and Krupps came with a brand name recognition that brought respect in the 19th century. You can reach the turrets where they once stood from the central courtyard, climbing up unsteadily through steep tunnels until you're on top of the fort, above the walls. Up on one of the now empty turrets, there was even a box that Ms. Chen says used to contain a telegraph machine. In other words, when this fort was finished in 1889, this was the final word in modernity. Best of all, the next enemy who came to Dan Shui, thinking it poorly defended, wouldn't even be able to see an attack from the fort coming. That's because it's completely hidden from outside view, tucked away behind high earthworks covered in trees. Ms. Chen points out the crumbling remains of a lookout on one side of the earthworks. She says a signaler could have climbed up here and used flags to silently help the gunners lock on to their unseen targets. This was the kind of structure the governor might proudly call the key to northern Taiwan. Maybe that's the idea he had in mind when he ordered the words key and lock to the north gate inscribed above the fort's entrance. The fort was also a fitting final project for its German engineer, who would soon be buried in Danshui's foreign cemetery. Going in, we knew that Ms. Chen was an expert at filling in holes in the fort's story. But we didn't realize that many of these holes are literal, all that's now left in these bare rooms to hint at what was once here. In the barracks, for example, there's an empty niche in the wall where Ms. Chen says an altar to the god of war would have once sat. Later, climbing back up to the turrets, we can see that the inside is indented with holes shaped like giant bullets. These holes, Ms. Chen says, would have been for keeping spare gunpowder on hand, just in case. She then invites me to try and squeeze inside one. It's just big enough. The strange entrance to one room is another example of the way you have to use clues in this fort to figure out what things were used for. The only way in or out is through two brick walls, broken up in places by arched entrances. But you can't enter or leave in a straight line. The entrances in the two brick walls don't line up. This is deliberate, Ms. Chen says. We're standing in what was once a gunpowder store, and the misalignment was meant to help contain any explosion. For a few years, soldiers and officials waited for any sign of an attack. They may even have been confident. But in Danshui, at least, the attack never came. Looking around at the fort's surroundings, though, we can see what did come instead. On one side is a lovely wooded green, looking oddly manicured for such an out-of-the-way place. On the other side is a martyr shrine, remembering those who made important contributions to the Republic of China. 
Ms. Chen says the wooded green to one side of us is a golf course, Taiwan's oldest, founded in 1919 and long a place where few Taiwanese could afford to come. As for the shrine on the other side, well, it's been repurposed. Originally, it was a Japanese Shinto shrine. What had happened was that Japanese forces had returned to Taiwan. A war on the Asian mainland led Imperial China to sign away Taiwan to Japanese rule. That was in 1895, just a few years after the fort was finished. When the landing came, it took place not here at Danshui, but in the port city of Keelung, down the road from here. And while there was Taiwanese resistance to this new arrangement, not a shot was ever fired from the fort here on this hilltop. In the end, it turned out, this fort had not been the key to the north after all. In later years, most people who saw the fort probably did so from the golf course. With the fort now a historic site, though, people can come here and rediscover a special point in Taiwan's history, a time when the island's leaders decided to embrace new technology from abroad in an effort to keep the old imperial rule intact. I'm John Van Trieste, and I hope you'll join me again next week for another Journey Through Time. This is Taiwan Explained, brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. So what do the patients of the new coronavirus, or COVID-19, have in common? Well, in today's Taiwan Explained, we're going to be talking about a new study coming to us from China. Now, I should mention, Nally, this study has not been peer-reviewed. However, the team that conducted this research is headed by Dr. Zhongnan Shen. And you'll remember that he is the guy who discovered the SARS coronavirus of 2003, right? Okay, so he has some experience there. Yes, a lot of experience. All righty. So Let's uh, give you 60 seconds for this. All right. Ready? Go. Yep. Now, this new research looked at more than 1,000 patients clinically diagnosed. Uh, now, they were at 552 hospitals in 31 provinces and cities. Most of the patients in the study were male with a median age of 47. They crunched the numbers, and this is what they found. More than 75% lived in Wuhan or had contact with someone from Wuhan. Only about 1% had direct contact with wildlife. Now, as for the symptoms, the most common was a fever. Nearly 90% had one, but notably less than half had a fever before hospitalization. Another common symptom was coughing. Now, let's talk about the more serious cases. 15% had severe pneumonia. 5% were admitted to the ICU, and about 1.4% of the people in the study succumbed to the virus. That's low, uh, lower than the previous uh, estimates of the fatality rate. And finally, perhaps most interesting, the incubation period was a, a, about a median of three days, which is also less than originally thought. <laughs> good job. Very <laughs> good job. Good time. Right. So I'm curious about this incubation period. Tell us more about that, what exactly that means. Okay, so incubation period, this is very interesting. This is uh, the time after you come in contact with the source of transmission and then before the point at which uh, we have the onset of symptoms. So basically what they're saying is, is it's a median of three days. Originally it was thought to be more like five days. And why this is so important is because you could actually have uh, COVID-19, the new coronavirus, and not know it 
but also be able to infect other people. Yeah, that's not good. Yeah. That's happened a lot. Um, also, people are talking about or wondering when this is going to end. What have you heard, Andrew? Well, this is the million-dollar question, right? Everybody wants to know, when is this going to be over? Uh, and there's no set answer, except that we don't really know. Now, Dr. Zhong Nanshan, who's the epidemiologist... Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw for the latest news and features from Taiwan. You can also listen to our programs and watch videos as well. Our 60-minute English language program can also be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kHz. Again, that's in southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kHz. And in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. Again, that's in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International. <laughs>